right, Clifton will be preaching from Colossians 3 tonight. If you could turn there. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. And our text specifically today is verses 8 to 11. 7 to 11. Right, Clifton? 7 to 11. 8 to 11. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, guys, let's, uh, let's pray, and then once we pray, we'll get into the text. Father, thank you so much again for just who you are and what you've done. We, we really can't say it enough. We don't want this to just be practice. We don't want it to just be uh, random traditions that just make us feel good, and that's why we do them, Lord. We want this to be something real, um, something meaningful. We want uh, this time, Lord, to be well spent. We want to enjoy one another. Um, we want to have fun. We want to um, catch up with one another that we haven't seen through the week. But, Lord, most especially, we just pray you would uh, transform us. For those of us who do not know you, Lord, who have not accepted the gospel, please open our hearts um, and just open your word to us. And for those of us who do know you um, but are confused or we are depressed or we are just struggling with life, we want to recognize that, um, Christ, you do exist, but um, for some reason something is missing. Lord, just reveal what is missing. Reveal um, how big and beautiful and glorious you are in a kingdom that you are building and that you've revealed to us in our hearts that we might live uh, according to your precepts, with joy, just recognizing how amazing it is to be a citizen of your kingdom, Lord. Please do that for us today as we get into Colossians. Please open up your word to our hearts. Thank you for who you are and what you've done so much, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, this week, I watched a video about two Jeffs. If you're wondering what is Jeff is, it's a human being named Jeff. I watched a video of two guys named Jeff. One, Jeff, um, was a, um, I almost said human being. One, Jeff, uh, was a hairdresser, a professional hairdresser. The other one was a homeless man. Um, they had developed a friendship with just seeing each other very often. And um, the one Jeff, who was the hairdresser, um, wanted to do something nice for the homeless man. And so the only thing he could think of was to cut his hair. So what he decided to do was find Jeff and give him a professional haircut just for free, um, just to kind of encourage his day. Um, so he found Jeff, invited him to his home, 
Um, unfortunately, he was just uh, not fully there. He was a little impaired, so they decided, um, Jeff, why don't you go out, um, and uh, we will try this tomorrow. And Jeff agreed, and he left. The next day, they went out, and the usual spot Jeff was, um, he was not there. And so the hairdresser, Jeff, decided to go around the city looking for him, and he spent hours uh, looking for him and searching, wanting to get this good thing done. And after a number of hours and talking to other people on the street, he eventually did find Jeff. And so once he found Jeff, they asked if he still wanted the haircut. He agreed, and they went to his house. Um, and when they went to the hairdresser's house, he just spent the next couple hours talking to Jeff. And as he was talking to Jeff, he learned a lot of interesting things about him. Um, Jeff was not always homeless. Um, he was a man who had a family. He was a war veteran. He went through real um, life-changing experiences, very traumatic life-changing experiences. Um, and as a result, he had started drinking. And as a result of his drinking, his family had left him. Um, and eventually that had led him to a number of decisions, which eventually led him to homelessness. Um, and in this situation, it was amazing to just see hairdresser Jeff um, open up to him and eventually finish his hair. And it was also amazing to see um, the smile on homeless man Jeff's face when it was done. Um, the hairdresser Jeff ended up surprising the other Jeff um, with not only a haircut but with a change of clothes um, and really kind of encouraged him and kept talking to him and we developed a friendship. And it was both beautiful and tragic at the exact same time. The reason it was beautiful is for the obvious reasons. Any act of kindness is beautiful. It's a demonstration of a kind of common grace that God has given to the world. And it was amazing to see a homeless man like Jeff open up to just a random act of kindness and such a, a real intentional act of kindness. But the more you talk to Jeff, there is something that really you do recognize. No matter how kind that act of kindness was, there was clearly another problem that was going on. And it wasn't just that Jeff was homeless. It's that he, like every single one of us, has a broken heart. A heart that has sin. A heart that suffers from the consequences of being alienated and hostile to God, like Colossians has been talking us. And the fact that even a haircut, no matter how amazing that is, or a change of clothes, however great that is, is not going to solve the ultimate problem. And that could be, for not only Jeff, but literally for every single one of us, that could be the end of the story. But what we've been learning about in Colossians is it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is this, that all of history has been pointing towards this one definitive act, which is God sending his son Christ to die on the cross. The world never recognized what exactly was going on, but Colossians 1 has told us what was going on. It's that Jesus Christ was God himself, fully God, fully man. And he didn't just come to live a nice life and be crucified as a criminal and be rejected and accidentally start a religious movement. He was God who came to solve the problem of what's going on on the inside for every single human being. And by Jesus dying on the cross, he not only fixed our sins and reconciled sinners to God and gave us a way to fix what's going on in the inside and give us a path to be with God for eternity. He didn't just reconcile us, but he reconciled the whole world. And one day we're going to witness that. Jesus Christ has changed the human heart. And as a result of that, he has told us that we are citizens of the kingdom. Paul's case that he has been building in the book of Colossians is that Christ is building a kingdom and he is filling it with citizens who have, in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, been transferred from the domain of darkness 
and been delivered into the kingdom of the beloved son. That is Jesus Christ. And as a result of being a kingdom citizen, we have to change into kingdom clothes. As a result of being kingdom citizens, we have to change into kingdom clothes. Now, what he's not just talking about, obviously, is a change of clothing. What he's talking about is a change of lifestyle. We didn't have the ability to change our behavior and our actions on the outside because they're only justified if they come from an attitude on the inside. We started looking at that last week when we dealt with Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 7. You remember we talked about two different sins, sexual immorality and selfishness. Sexual immorality is technically a sin on the outside, but it comes from the inside. And selfishness obviously can be noticed on the outside, but it's dealing with on the inside. And you remember that Paul reminded us fundamentally that we do not need to be enslaved to those sins because we're not those people anymore. That's where we left off last week. We are not those people anymore. And today we are basically hearing the exact same thing. The exact same thing we learned last week, the same pattern, but with different sins and a re-explanation of the reasons. Last week, we learned we put sin to death because we have to identify what sin is, and then we need to see the reasons why we do not sin that way anymore, why we do not live that way anymore. And Paul is going to do the same thing today, and he explains that in verse 8 and verse 9 when he says this. He opens verse 8 by saying, you must put them all away. Paul is going to explain some sins that we are changing our clothes in, basically. These sins are like filthy rags that we as kingdom citizens should not be wearing anymore. And so verse 9, he explains, you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. That taking off the old self with its practices is actually a legitimate metaphor that would be the same words used to literally change your clothes. And the clothes that we are changing are our practices, our attitudes, our behaviors, because we have been changed on the inside, so we change what's on the outside. So we're going to do the same pattern this week that we did last week. We're going to identify, this time, six sins instead of five, six sins that we are going to put away, and then we're going to look at two reasons why we put them away. Six sins we put away, and two reasons why we put them away. And if you want to put all of that under kind of one umbrella sentence, if you could remember one sentence to sum up the whole sermon this week, it would be this. Here are six sins Paul tells us to put away so that we live like citizens of Christ's kingdom. Six sins that we put away so that we live like citizens of Christ's kingdom. So let's look at these six sins. And it's actually going to be pretty easy to divvy them up this week. Of those six sins, you can actually split them in half, three and three. The first three sins that Paul mentions are all the same sin, explained in three different ways. And then the next three sins are actions. And they're all the same kind of action, again, explained in a different way. And we'll see as we get to those ones. So the first three sins can all be summarized by the first one mentioned, which is anger. Paul says that the three first sins which are attitudes of the heart on the inside that we put away, are anger, wrath, and malice. Anger, wrath, and malice. You cannot be human and have never struggled with anger. The word anger literally refers to a kind of swelling up, a storm that's going on inside of your heart that results in you being opposed to someone, you being an opponent of somebody else. But even if I told you that, 
I think just baseline, we already know what anger is. We know what it is, and we know we have it. We know the ways that it shows up in our lives, like being frustrated or bitter or passive-aggressive or resentful. Those are all various forms of it. We know that it's sometimes obvious to people on the outside, but we know sometimes, even if it doesn't show up dramatically, it's still hiding so often on the inside. And we know it can sometimes be hard to expose. It comes out in very subtle ways. And most importantly, and I think this is why he mentions these sins here, we know how hard anger is to put away. Paul is not oblivious to the fact that anger is probably not only incredibly common with both believers and non-believers, but it is incredibly hard to put away. And it's probably evident of that because he re-explains anger with two other words, wrath and malice. Those are more dramatic forms of anger. Wrath means rage. Wrath means rage. It is anger bubbling up inside so violently and so hotly that it comes to the surface. It could be in a sudden outburst, or it could be a display of aggression, like yelling or screaming at someone. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33, it says, pressing milk produces curds, and pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. The proverb writer is just making an obvious connection. If you spin milk, you know, the old way they used to make cheese, if you spin it for a long time, it's going to produce curds. It's going to make cheese. That's obvious, a logical conclusion. He also says if you punch someone in the face, if you press someone's nose, they're probably going to have a nosebleed, cause and effect. In the exact same way, if you press a person, anger is probably going to come out of them. And the kind of anger he uses isn't just regular anger, it's wrath, it's rage. It's going to show up in people's life because of how common it is. But anger doesn't need to show up in a dramatic way to cause damage. And that's probably why Paul adds this word malice. The idea behind malice is the idea that as anger grows inside of us and we don't fight it, it can transform into greater and greater evil that God hates and it will eventually go against others whether they know it or not. Whether they know it or not. It's a kind of comfortability with anger that hides on the inside. It also has the idea of affecting other sins. So malice can sometimes come in and attach itself to other sins and grow stronger and stronger and having no resistance against it. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the idea of virtue. Virtue. Okay, so the idea of virtue is a kind of good that is objective that everyone agrees in. People used to teach them in classical literature. Malice is the opposite of virtue. So now you know how serious this word is. And actually, this is such a serious sin that even the world, in a lot of ways, recognizes how serious uh, this sin is. There's a phrase that maybe some of you guys have heard used in a courtroom before. Sometimes um, a prosecutor can tell a defendant, so the guy who uh, might have committed a crime, who's on trial for a crime, had malice of forethought. Anyone ever heard of that before? They had malice of forethought. The idea behind it is that someone not only murdered or hurt someone else, did a serious sin against someone else, committed a crime against someone else, but the idea in their heart was evil. So it's the courtroom in the world recognizing that there's something that exists objectively is evil, and it makes a sentence worse. So this sin can be so common and so serious that even in the world it can show up in certain ways. And Paul doesn't explain them as extreme forms because they're uncommon. It's actually the opposite. It's because these ones are incredibly common. 
Anger can grow to such a dangerous degree easily, and its seeds, where it grows from, are very commonly sown. And that's Paul's point in mentioning them. I really like a uh, quote that Jerry Bridges has that I think uh, explains a really helpful point. If you have a Jerry Bridges book, he's a really good pastor who's written a lot of really helpful books. He said this, I have no doubt that there are many other circumstances or actions of other people that can tempt us to be angry, but they can never cause us to be angry. The cause always lies within our hearts, usually as a result of our pride or selfishness. I think Jerry Bridges makes a really good point, which is this. Anger isn't just a sin, it's a choice. No one makes you get angry. Let me say that again. No one makes you get angry. Someone can force and push you to have anger come out of you, but it's in there and you chose for it to happen. And the reason is because we find anger or having our anger explode into the world, we find that satisfying. That is what sinners find satisfying. And that is the opposite of how Christians are supposed to behave because Christians find Christ satisfying. So instead of dealing with our frustration with injustice or someone going against us, what we should be caring about is that someone has sinned against God. But that's not how we naturally behave. So Paul wants to mention how serious that is. Some of you may have heard of righteous anger, the idea that there can be a kind of anger that is good and that is legitimate. But this is the difference between the sin of anger and righteous anger, which is God's anger. When God gets angry, he's always right. He always has a reason to be right because no one should ever go against his will. But here's the problem. When we are angry, we are almost always wrong. Most of our anger comes from frustration that someone went against us, that someone sinned against us, that someone went against our will and not God's will. And that's how anger for humans so often is a sin. Those are three attitudes of the heart that are all talking about anger. And Paul goes from there to then talk about three more sins. And all of those three sins are behaviors that have to do with speech. The next three sins have to do with human speech. The first two that he mentions are slander and obscene talk. The idea in slander, I gave you a Greek word last year. I'll give you a Greek word uh, last week. I'll give you a Greek word this week. The Greek word for slander is blasphemia which should probably sound familiar, blaspheming. It's the idea of two things. One is that it could mean that someone has said something and you are lazy or slow to call it good or lazy to call it bad. It's basically being passive with truth. That's one way that this word can mean slander, but usually it means something else, which is this. It often means switching right for wrong. It's calling something right or wrong, especially in subtle ways. It's saying little truths, especially altering the truth when it comes to other people. Slandering is ignoring or altering the truth to fit our needs or changing someone's perception or accuracy of what is true to get what we want. It's basically being very, very subtle about lying. Then he goes on to another, which is obscene talk from your mouth. Literally, it means filthy language from 
your lips. It's two words put together. One is shameful and then speaking and putting it together to make a brand new word. It's talking about what we should never talk about because it's improper or disgraceful or filthy. Now, obscene talk from your mouth doesn't even need to hurt someone's feelings. You could be saying a kind of joke that's inappropriate, but everyone finds it funny, but it's still a sin. No matter who is affected by it, and no matter who is listening, God is listening. And God has said that language is serious and dangerous because it's been used as a tool for good that we so often corrupt for evil. Paul even says in the book of Ephesians, there are some things that Christians should never talk about and certain sins they shouldn't even bring up because they are so comfortable in the darkness. That's obscene, talk with your mouth. And I think Paul actually sums up both of those sins with the third one that he mentions, which is this, do not lie to each other. If you actually look at the way he says that, you could translate it, never lie to each other. This is the one Paul is really serious about that kind of doubles down on the other two ones. And you guys know what lying is. Changing the truth. It means believing that language, which is a tool from God, can be used to ignore God and deny reality. And I think in Colossians that makes especially sense. You could think of lying this way. Lying is distorting reality. Lying is distorting or changing reality. If Colossians is a book about many things, one thing it's especially about is reality. But when you see the divine perspective that Christ has changed your heart to see the world as it really is, you are seeing the right reality. And when you lie, you are denying true, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-kingdom-centered reality. So whether it's a white lie or something way more extreme, any kind of lying is a serious serious sin. If you look at these three sins, these three attitudes from the heart that deal with anger and three attitudes that are behaviors that deal with sinful speech, if you're not a Christian, I don't think you would necessarily find a connection between the two of them. You could be angry and sin in one way, or you could lie with your mouth and do it for another reason in your heart. But there's a reason that Paul mentions these two together. Jesus once said in Matthew chapter 12, you'll recognize this verse, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I think this is the connection here. Out of the abundance of anger in the heart, the mouth speaks evil. There is some kind of connection between being angry, even as a Christian, and then using your mouth for sin. And that is so serious that Paul wants to nip it right in the bud. He wants to attack it and tell Christians we have no excuse to speak this way. I told you last week, one of the main themes from last week is that rules result from values. That God has things that are very important, and as a consequence, there are rules there. Rules protect God's values, and rules are a way that believers follow through in their life believing the same values. Those are the reasons why we have these rules. And so Paul is going to give us two reasons as well. So let's get to them so we can actually put these sins away. The first is in verse 9, and it's this. You do not live this way, number one, because you are a renewed person. 
You do not live this way because you are a renewed person. Verse 9 says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its old practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, I think half of those verses sounds familiar, and that half of it doesn't. The part that I think sounds familiar is that we've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. I think if I came down right now and just interviewed you guys one by one, I think almost all of you guys could tell me what that means. That we believe in Christ because God has brought his gospel to our hearts, and now we believe the gospel, and as a result, we live differently. We've put off the old self that loved sin and hated God. God came, changed our lives, and now we put on the new self with a new change of clothes. We believe the gospel, and now we want to obey God from the heart because we live in his kingdom. Off with the old, in with the new. But, because this is so important, Paul is mentioning it again and again and again, and I think he explains it here in the best and most exciting way that he's ever said it in Colossians, which is he describes it this way. You have been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You have been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The idea of renewed is being made new. Our renewal is happening. We've been made new, but it's a process. I think a lot of Christians, I think when I was your guys' age, one of the questions that I had is if Christ really came to me, if I really believed the gospel, why didn't everything just change at once? Like, why do I never sin ever? Why do I have to wait until Christ comes again? Why do I have to wait till I die? Why can't I just never sin again? That seems like a better plan. Two quick things. Number one, before you fully understand that, just know God is good and has a good plan. So even if you don't understand it, it's a better plan. But I want to help you explain it or understand it just a little bit more with this. The reason that sanctification is a process is because we need to know we need to depend on God every single day. I think if Christ transformed us now, we would forget how important Christ is to our lives. Every single day, we are like a car that is running out of gas, and we need to go to the gas station and fill up on Christ. That's the way a pastor named John Piper used to explain it. We need to depend on God every single day. We need to see the little changes he's making to our lives every single day, so that every single day of our lives, we are depending on Christ, and we're being refreshed and renewed when we see what he is doing to change our lives. Some of you guys know that one of my first jobs was working in a plastic factory, And when I was working at a plastic factory, my only job was packing. I never had to deal with the maintenance of the machines. But the longer that I worked there, I worked there four summers in a row for four months at a time, doing graveyard shifts, afternoon shifts, and morning shifts. And I've drank more coffee there than I've ever drank in my entire life. And when I was there, even though I was packing, I started knowing how the machines worked because I was around them every single day. And the way they work is they have a big hose that is put into a cardboard box full of plastic pieces Sometimes brand new plastic pieces or um, failed plastic that's been grinded down, which was one of my jobs as well. It would suck that up and put it in a big furnace and burn it down into like Play-Doh. And then it would shoot the Play-Doh out in a form. But when it came out, it didn't just naturally go into the form it was supposed to be. It was like hot lava. So what happened is two things. One is it needed tools to fix it. It needed tools to fix it. Those tools could sometimes be big tanks of water that it would force through and kind of pull it through. 
and it would be these tiny little knives and pieces that would form it into a shape. So there are two things that were really important in making plastic, equilateral plastic shapes. Number one is you needed tools to form it into the shape, and the last is you needed to see the form that it would show up in. It needed to be fixed, to be put into the right form. And the cool thing I think about this passage that you see when you are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, that second half, you see both of those things. You see the spiritual tools that Christ is using to reshape you into a renewed person, and you see the form that you're going to end up at. So the tool that God is using here to shape you is knowledge. God has given you a view of the universe. And it's not just a view to be sorted in with every other view. It is God's top-down, thousand-million-foot view of the entire world, and it's perfectly accurate, and you have it in your hands. This is the cool part. It's not only knowledge that's the tool to shape you. It's also the reward. It's not just something that's being used so that you can become who you are. That's the way Paul describes becoming a new person in Christ. It's also the reward. The more that you use this tool, the more you benefit by it. The more joy that you have. This is the greatest tool in the whole universe. And that tool forms you into the most exciting form anyone could ever want to be formed into. That tool of knowledge is shaping you to look like God. That's what he says. You have been shaped to look like the image of the creator. We are people who are becoming more and more like who designed us and who we've been designed to be. There is no greater goal in the world than becoming like God. Now, we don't become God but we become like God. Remember, in Genesis, we've been designed after God. We bear the image of God. God has divine marks on us, but we know because of sin, that image is corrupted. But in Christ, that image is being restored. We are becoming the divine people God made us to be and live in his kingdom forever. And that means, most importantly, you're becoming more like Jesus. Do you guys remember when we did that passage on who Jesus was as God in Colossians 1, 15 to 20? I think those are some of the best verses in the entire New Testament. But it begins with this. Jesus, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. The perfect image of God is Christ. And if you are being molded into the image of the creator, you are becoming more like Christ. If you've ever seen a view of Christ, the perfect incarnate son of God, the most lovable, likable, most amazing friend anyone in the universe could ever have, you are naturally becoming more like him. The more you see him, the more you seek him, and the more you recognize why you should love him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The more you look at Christ, the more you become like Christ. Why do we need this? Why do we need this? Because putting off anger and sinful speech must be part of the refinement process. There is a reason why Christians don't become angry. And it's not because life is perfect, and it's not because life is awesome, but it's because we have a life that knows its purpose. Its purpose is about Christ. 
There are dangerous things that can happen when you put defective products into the world. I knew that from the plastic factory. If you put out a bad pipe, there could be a gas leak somewhere. If you put out a bad uh, door frame, someone's door could fall off and like crush them. There were even things that had to do with railroads. So you could derail a train if you let bad products leave the plastic factory. And when Christians don't take putting off sin seriously, there can be dangerous consequences in the world and dangerous consequences to your own soul, even as a Christian. We care about looking like Christ because Christ is the greatest image and greatest relationship anyone could have in the world. So we care about showing people how good that relationship is, not under pressure, but willingly, and we care about looking like Christ because we want to please Christ. Christ is the greatest friendship we have ever had. And if we are angry, we are not enjoying the benefits that Christians should deserve. One thing I want you guys always to remember when you leave here and go into the world to work or to university is that it is good to be a Christian. It is a good life to be a Christian. It is a difficult life and it is a costly life. And sometimes it is a tragically hard life, but it is a way better life than you will ever find in the world because you are becoming like the one who created you. And you will live with the one who created you, with you for eternity. So number one, remember you are a renewed person. And I wanted to spend more time on the second reason, but I want to respect our time. But let me give you the second reason. The first reason you no longer live in these sins is because you are a renewed person. That's what we just talked about. But number two, Paul says in verse 11, we do not live this way because we are a renewed people, plural. You are a renewed person, but all of us are renewed people. Here is probably the most important reason why Paul mentions these sins in this text. It's because these two sins destroy communities. These two sins destroy communities. It will destroy a church if anger and sinful speech go unfought. One pastor said this, that Paul's most important concern is the health of the Christian community and lying, which remember is a result of anger, lying is a particularly clear form of community sin. It is a big deal lying. It is a big deal to tease someone. Have you guys ever considered that it is a big deal to speak out of as something as simple as annoyance? If you've ever been annoyed with someone and spoke, that's serious. Not serious because I want to freak you out in terms of just make you behave better, but just think about if your whole world and all of your responses in the world all have to do with you. There's no greater way to destroy people than telling them the world is about you. The world is about something better and we want to act that way because we know the value of community and the great amazing thing about God is how much he is worthy of all plays and all glory and all adoration. And he has not just provided himself to enjoy, he's provided a community that we may enjoy him together. It is one of the most encouraging, real-time, daily results of being a Christian is that you have people. And when you sin against God in his church, it destroys one of the most beautiful things 
that he is building. And we should care about that, not just in the church, but in our families, in our friendships, and out with anyone in the world. We need the same thing today because we have the same problem today. When we decide that anger is a respectable sin, that's the way Jerry Bridges calls it, a respectable sin, a sin that we don't need to deal with, and we allow it to happen, and we allow it to result in unacceptable speech, it can destroy Christian friendship and fellowship, even if it's not traumatic. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, The tongue stains the whole body and sets the entire course of life on fire. Anger and sinful speech together can cause serious harm. I am totally in this camp with you guys. It is amazing to see real time how untrue it is that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's one thing to say that's not true. It's another thing to see how untrue it is. I can't tell you how many times I have sent my brothers and sisters crying from what I thought was just an offhand remark. It is terrifying and it is sobering. The beautiful thing that Paul really wants to point out is he doesn't want to just say, how dare you, you're the worst, God's coming to get you. Actually, he's saying this, you need to see how good God is by getting into God's community and seeing how God has created a way through Christ that no one cannot be friends. That's what Paul says here. And he says it by saying every single person he could imagine that would have beef with each other can come to the church and be united. That's what he does in verse 11. He says Greeks and Jews. Greeks and Jews were opposite kinds of people in about a hundred different ways, but most importantly, they were different religiously. Remember, Jews were God's people. Greeks were the people of the world. All the Greeks' values and worship were totally different from the people of God. And you can see in the Old Testament that the Jews really held this against the Greeks and didn't want anything to do with them. They not only didn't want to associate with them because God told them to, they didn't want to associate with them because they didn't like them. When God told them to reach the nations, they didn't want to. Circumcision was one of the reasons. It was a sign of God's people. There were people who were uncircumcised and circumcised. So not only were Jews different from Greeks and the rest of the world, even people in the Jewish community were different from other people in the Jewish community. And even when Christ got rid of that division, it still caused problems in the church. It still caused weird hierarchies that didn't need to exist anymore because of what Christ had done. But at least that wasn't as big a deal as two other groups of people that were potentially coming to the church. They're called barbarians and Scythians. You guys know the idea of barbarians. The idea of barbarians has the word bar-bar in it. It's an onomatopoeia. It's a word that makes a sound. And bar-bar was kind of like blah, blah, blah. Barbarians were people you didn't understand because they were from a completely different culture. And they were barely considered human beings. And Scythians were even worse. They were like double down twice as bad barbarians. And they didn't want them all, not only not in the community, they didn't even want to look at them. They wanted them a couple countries away. And if culture wasn't bad enough, way away in other countries, it was terrible within the community in terms of the cities that people lived in. The social divides of slave and free were deemed the most impossible bridges to connect. It is impossible for one person who is a slave and another person who is free to understand each other at all. 
They could live in the same city, but basically live in totally different worlds. And Paul mentions all of those people for this reason. This is what one pastor said. These distinctions irrationally set humans over and against one another, but they evaporate when a person becomes joined to Christ's body. The gospel shatters an us versus them mentality. It removes special entitlement, which explains why so many people who are already privileged react to the gospel with such hostility. Paul's conclusion is that being in Christ and not being from a certain race or class is the only thing that matters. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Christ created a new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross and therefore killing the hostility. The way I would say it is killing any hostility. Any beef you could ever have with someone, if you were in Christ and they are in Christ, all peace is possible. He continues in verse 19 in Ephesians 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christians are a community where everyone identified as in Christ belongs to Christ and belongs to each other. We are no longer friends. We are a family. And that's important for us. Not just in Roots, which is really important. That's why we're here, but at the church at large. Just think about how different we could potentially be if we believed wholeheartedly in this. If we thought there is no homeschooled or public schooled, there is no sharing my interests or not sharing my interests, there is no junior high or high schooler, there is no play Clash Royale or has never played Clash Royale or never heard of Clash Royale. You guys see what I'm looking at? If none of those divisions were most important and being in Christ was more important, would we look any different? If I were you listening to this sermon, I know exactly what I would say. I'd say one of two things. Number one, I have the right to pick my own friends. And you're right. You do have the right to pick your own friends. Here's the thing. You do not have the right to pick your own family. You didn't pick the families you were born in, which means you have a responsibility to them. And you didn't pick the church you came to, pretty much none of you. And that's because God has a better plan for you than you do. All of you guys have personalities and you know the kind of friends you want to have. Christ has a better plan for you. He wants to pick a better family for you than you could possibly imagine. Because every single person in this room and in this church was designed for you as a family member for you, for your sanctification and for your growth. That comes with people being annoying. That comes with people pushing your buttons. That comes with people being so different from you. But it is all part of a plan for you to see Christ more clearly and to help other people see Christ more clearly. That's Christ's better plan. We could never arrange a better friend group, a better fellowship, a better family than Christ's good. And that means even when it's trying, it is good. If we trust Christ, you will never experience the kind of love that a church that loves Christ could give you anywhere else in the world. I 100% guarantee it. Not only because so many of us have experienced it, because the Bible says it's true. This is the second thing I would say. If I were you listening to this, there are some people that just are not my jam. 
there are some people that are just not my jam. I totally get it. So this is me speaking harshly to me, not to you. This is me speaking harshly to 15-year-old me. Christ didn't think I was his jam. 100%. Christ had one million infinite more reasons to reject me, and he didn't. He died for me instead. He died for me, and he died for that person. If they're in Christ, they belong to Christ, and they are in Christ. Therefore, they identify themselves as Christ. So every time I talk to a Christian, I should see Christ behind them telling me, this is your brother, this is your sister. Love them because I died for them and I bought them. And I want them to be united with you in love. That's what God has told us. And there's a reason we need to be forceful about this. And the reason is this. God does care about your life. God doesn't want to force you into awkward, uncomfortable friendships. He loves you and has a good plan for you. And that's why he put the people around you in front of you. These are not random family members. These are eternal family members. If we have an eternal perspective, we know that these people are going to be friends and family with us forever. And if they're not, we want them to be. Because we know just as we deserved hell, every sinner deserves hell, and we want them to see Christ and have a relationship with them forever. That's why we get rid of anger and sinful speech. We get rid of anger and sinful speech because we want to put nothing in the way of an eternal relationship with Christ. So if you know you're a renewed person, and if you know we are a renewed people and you have no idea what to do, I'll just give you one suggestion. Seek Christ. Seek Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, let the words of my heart and the meditation of my mind be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you can't control yourself, trust that Christ can come and provide self-control. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is for you. And he has said that for those who seek the kingdom of Christ, everything else will be added to them. Seek the face of Christ in prayer. Ask him to transform you into a new person so that you can put off the old practices that you would be a vessel of Christ's grace to everyone you meet. Christ has a better plan and a better path for us forward. It is leading to eternity and every step to there that Christ commands us to is an amazing step. And you may be fortunate enough to see the joy and transformation that comes to someone, whether it's you or someone else, when they come to Christ. And there is nothing better than being a citizen representing Christ to others, that they might be family with you in heaven forever. That's why we put off anger and sinful speech. Let's pray. Father, we have now covered so many things that are common for us. Sexual immorality, sinful speech, anger, selfishness, covetousness, idolatry, these are not foreign things to us. This is us. I know thinking through this, Lord, you have already revealed so much in terms of the person that I used to be. 
makes it very sobering to try and look and try and consider how it is that we might be transformed when it seems so impossible to fight our own sin. But you remind us it is as simple as confessing you as our Lord. You are so much better. You are so much greater. And you've provided a perfect path towards sanctification to see you, to behold your glory, that we might be transformed into the same image and we might look like you to the world. Whether they reject us or they accept us and therefore accept Christ, Lord, we want to be good representatives of your kingdom. Lord, give us enjoyment of the gospel. Give us a love and peace over it and we might worship you in our lives and naturally put off our old practices. Lord, let it start in our homes. If we have sinned against family members, Lord, forgive us. We want to be repentant people because we know the evil that is lurking in our hearts when we hate the family that you've provided. And we also want that to affect our church, Lord. Sometimes it can be easy to say that we're not in sin because we don't necessarily hate someone. We're just annoyed with someone or we don't want to spend time with someone. But you have provided them that we might be sanctified and we might help them be sanctified. Maybe we might even help them see you because we know how desperate their situation is. Lord, we want to be a fellowship built around conversation and around kindness that we would represent you because you are worthy of it. Lord, please help us and transform us and just give us a renewed mind that we might test to see what is good and noble and honorable. We want to be people who live as citizens of your kingdom and experience all of the benefits of worshiping you as our God. Please help us, be gracious to us, and give us your promises that you have promised, Lord, that we might be transformed people, not perfectly, but growing in step. And even as we grow, we know and we can be assured that your gospel is real. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. We've gone through two sermons now where we've dealt with some pretty serious sin. And I think at least as I've kind of gone back to listen, talked in a very serious tone, the job is not because we're angry. Obviously, that would be a sin.